0: Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Matthew Carr. We will be discussing his book, Blood and Faith, The Purging of Muslim Spain, published in London by Hearst Publishers 2017. Matt is a writer and a journalist. A lifelong Hispanophile, Matt writes fiction and nonfiction often focused on themes, from Spanish and Latin American culture, history, and politics. He is the founder of the One Day Without Us Campaign in solidarity with migrants and a co-host of the podcast, Grim Up North, a podcast about the North from the North. Matt, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Equally, I'm really pleased to be here.
0: To begin, uh, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life Inspired your intellectual journeys.
1: Um, I grew up. I, I grew up in the West Indies. I lived seven years as a, as a child in the West Indies. It was a very turbulent time politically. Not that I knew that much about that, being only a child, but I did know a fair amount about it because of my parents. Because my dad was, um, my dad was on the left. He was a lecturer in English literature at uh, University of the West Indies and later on in the University of Guyana. So my marriage, my parents' marriage was quite um, fractious, to say the least. So I think if I look back on how the kind of writer I later became, a lot of it comes from that period of history that I lived through in the sense that I was very conscious of issues about race and racism. I heard a lot of stuff from my parents. Obviously, you know, in the West Indies, it's just becoming independent. There were all kinds of conversations going on about race and racism and colonialism and slavery and so on. And I also have a very strong memory. Um, Probably I was too young, really, to be looking at this kind of material, but my dad had a copy of um, Lord Beaverbrook's um book about... Was it Lord Beaverbrook? No, no, maybe I've got the name wrong. The book about um Nazi war crimes and Japanese war crimes. It was a famous... um It was a famous investigation, not a particularly good one, but it was quite important in terms of the impact it had. And my dad had it. And I remember coming across that when I was quite young and reading some of it and looking at the photographs and just being absolutely shocked out of my mind. Like I just could not understand. It asked the question, how could people do this? Why can people be like this? I just could not understand it and it you know i without overdoing it i would say that a lot of my writing has been an attempt to understand why people can do these kind of things and um you know a lot of the writing i do kind of reaches into history i don't consider myself to be a historian as such but a writer who relies heavily on history who is interested in history who's interested in tracing how history shapes the the present how historical forces bore into the present even under the surface and interested in what you can kind of take from history in terms of how we might guide ourselves towards becoming better societies i often think in terms of george orwell's um famous um description of himself as a writer who was willing to face inconvenient facts i always respected that um and that's the kind of writing i've done so there's a kind of trajectory, it might seem a bit erratic, but you can trace it, I think, right back to those early readings and those early conversations between my parents about slavery and racism and the Holocaust and so on. It was uh, it was quite early, probably too early, but there you go. It definitely shaped who I am and, and the kind of writing that I've done.
0: Who did you write this book for? Can you tell us about your intended audience your ideal readers, and the people you wished to reach?
1: Um, I think I always write every book for the same person, in a way. In the the words, I, because I do not consider myself as an academic as such, but I often rely heavily on academia for the kind of research that backs up my books. I, um, I'm often struck when I read a lot of academic literature, that it, why is it not out there? Why is this not more, more part of public discussion? Um, you know, history being my main preoccupation, but there are others, uh, there are other subject matters that I've also um entered into um through academia. And I'm so, you know, I, I was once once as a writer, I used to write a lot of poetry. I've also written fiction. So I like stories and I like narratives, and I like to use those devices. When I'm kind of talking about um, particular issues, like in this case, the book about the Mariscos, I assume I like to think of a reader who is curious, intelligent, and willing to consider that the world is not what it should be, and that reading can help you perhaps make it as good as it could be. Um, so, readers who come to my read uh, readers who don't want to be disturbed, probably better staying away from most of my books because. I've often written about some quite disturbing things in the present and in the past, so I consider that part of my um, um, vocation, if you like. And so, yes, I'm reading. I think of readers who are willing to um, to at least consider some of the things that I'm trying to present them with. And in this particular book, when I wrote it, I came to it. I mean, I came to. I came to. Should I tell you about the uh, how I actually came to the subject of the Mariscos themselves?
0: Yes, that was actually going to be my next question. Can you tell yeah. us what the origins of your interest in... Because it's kind of part
1: of... It, yeah, I, I can. I ominous. can, and it kind of leads to this. It leads to um, the question you just asked. I mean, I actually hadn't heard of the mariscos until specific, very specifically the year 1992, the um, year of the kinsentennial of um, Columbus's voyages, um, and all of that entailed. Um, the expulsion of the jews from spain by the catholic monarchs um the conquest the discovery in commerce of america and all that all that and all the discussions that were going on around it at the time it was quite a sort of triumphalist period in the light, if you like just after the Berlin wall had fallen and the end of communism and so on and yet the bosnian war was unfolding so you saw you were already beginning to see 1992 it was really just beginning to kick off in um, croatia but it was moving towards bosnia where there was, as we all know, um, a large Muslim minority that that was um, savagely attacked by um, um, a hyper-nationalist Serb militia. So I saw that I was aware of all that and was and I you know I was interested in the contrast between the triumphalist rhetoric and this kind of horrible return to ethnic conflict that people thought or imagined had disappeared. And then I remember reading an article um, by Juan Goytisolo, the great Spanish writer, the late Juan Goytisolo, novelist and um, writer of nonfiction and famous Arabophile, um, about the moriscos. And I had never heard of even the word before. And I certainly didn't understand who they were or what had happened. And he kind of set me off to reading people like um, Americo Castro. And I began to discover the existence of this very large minority that um, was essentially destroyed over a period of uh, hundred years following 1492, and it, it struck me then that how not many other people seem to know much about it either. And so, you know, I didn't write think of writing about it anything then. It just sort of sat in the back of my mind. And then, um, in the first decade of this century. When i'd already written uh, other books i'd published other books um a memoir about my childhood in the West indies i published a uh, history of terrorism um i began to think of what book to write next and i was writing articles about this um conspiracy theory known as eurabia um, which was a, a well-known conspiracy theory developed by the israeli egyptian writer bat yor that basically suggested there was a kind of muslim plot to take over europe and and turn it into a new caliphate and so on um and it was part sci-fi and it was part referencing old kind of um tropes about islam and i began to think again of the moriscos i began to think again of the moriscos when i thought about the framing of muslims in europe as being this kind of internal enemy not only in security terms but culturally religiously and so on so i began to kind of basically i basically put a proposal together to write a book about the moriscos and that's essentially how it happened because it was accepted and i was able to do it
0: can you summarize your book for us what are the key themes and messages in the study
1: i think um key messages i wanted to convey um were that this is a case study in how a powerful majority that nevertheless still feels a powerful social and political majority can feel powerful, and yet simultaneously vulnerable, and how it construct um, an idea of a more or less powerless minority as something far more powerful and dangerous than it is, than it actually is, and how that leads to bad policy, how it leads to a kind of cycle of um, paranoia, hatred, bigotry, and how If these dynamics are not properly understood, you can end up in destructive outcomes, historical tragedies. Well, historical tragedies like the expulsion of the Moriscos, which was the expulsion of approximately 350,000 people between 1609 to 1614. Um, And I call it historical tragedy, but I also consider it historical crimes and kind of crime that we've become familiar with um, since and before in many different places. so I wanted to kind of dissect why that had happened and see what um, what lessons if any could be drawn. I I think any book I ever write about the past I always look for what lessons if any could be drawn and and so yeah so the, but those were those were my aims in the book and you know as I was saying earlier as a writer who writes about history rather than being a historian as such, I felt I have the freedom to do that. Um, I have the freedom to make certain parallels and um, between different historical periods and events, which some historians are distrustful of for, for you know legitimate reasons. But you know it's it's what I do, and um, and so I wanted to just apply it to, to this particular historical case. I also I should mention another thing as well that I it wasn't only the Eurabia. Um, conspiracy theory, uh, theory and the theories around it that um, made me think of the mariscos. The mariscos were also mentioned by people like Osama bin Laden um, um, following the 9/11 attacks. You know, it was one of the grievances um, in commas that he added to the list. Um, reasons why um, you know we must reclaim Al Andalus and so on. He used to he said once and more than once actually. So you know. Osama bin Laden was all about mobilizing grievance galvanizing grievance as a justification for um atrocities like 911 so like i was interested in looking at that side as well you know to what extent because he he portrayed it in the way that many people would imagine the pre 1492 um spanish past that and um and al-andalus the um the muslim kingdom of Al- al-andalus was a kind of utopian place you know kind of precursor to what we now call multiculturalism and so on so i wanted to kind of weigh up whether this was true or not you know what was what was accurate what was not and last but not least and and this became particularly fascinating to me as i was writing the book i want to challenge this idea that um catholic spain was this monolithic fanatical place you know um exclusively dominated by violence bigotry and religious intolerance, because there's, you know, one of the revelatory things for me while researching and writing the book was how that wasn't true, um, wasn't entirely true. Not, I'm not saying that those forces didn't exist, but there was a whole other side of Spain that resisted some of these tendencies. And I wanted to show that as well, because in a way, if you're kind of looking for lessons to the present, you always you need to point out that every society has the potential to become one thing or another. And that was as true in, in um, 16th century Spain as it is now.
0: What kinds of sources did you use in your research? How did you locate them? What kinds of challenges did you experience?
1: The biggest the biggest challenge was knowing that I knew very little about the Moriscos and lots of other people knew an enormous amount. Um, so you have to, so if you enter a subject matter like this, you have to do it with a certain humility. I mean, um, so I wanted, I had certain instincts that I followed in the kind of um, stories I wanted to tell and the kind of areas I wanted to investigate, but I had to do pay um, due diligence to the, histo- to the history, to the historiography, to the way that this episode has been used and misused over the years, and it's also enormously complex. I mean, all the you know the the, the reasons for the expulsion are not simple, um, and so you know I have to say that. Um, there were times when writing that book did my head in, um, you know, in the sense that I, you know, I just sometimes felt I can't do this. I felt it was um, so overwhelming, and the, the mass of material and the complexity of the ideas and historical forces involved. So those were the challenges, um, you know. And then to kind of break this down into a way that a 21st century reader who is not a specialist, the kind of reader I talked about before, who is not a specialist, could enter it and in, and engage with the material. So in terms of sources, luckily there's an enormous amount that's been written by brilliant historians from um, Spain specifically, but also from the United States. Henry Leaves talks about the Inquisition, France. And also, interestingly enough, a lot of the material I use was written by apologists for the expulsion. So 19th century writers and early 20th century writers like Pascal um, um, Boronat I Baracina, who compiled this enormous two-volume uh history of expulsion, essentially to justify it. So the interesting thing is, why was he doing that in the late 19th, early 20th century? You know, but he was. And so he compiled this huge amount of documents, Council of State documents, um crucial stuff, you know. Um but in order to prove a case that, as far as I was concerned, didn't stand up because, um, you know, he was, he was trying to show why the crown had no choice to do the expulsion, why um, the Moriscos were completely incompatible with Spanishness and so on and so forth. And he wasn't the only one. There's a whole tradition of historians like that. And if you go further back, you find these anti-Morisco texts from the um, from the 16th century and early 17th century which basically celebrate this episode, but in celebrating it also um deploy an enormous amount of documentation among as well as the bigotry and prejudice. So they they were interested in celebrating it as a glorious episode in Spain's um, regeneration. Um I drew different conclusions, but I could use their material to enter. And in terms of the Inquisition, a lot of stories about the Moriscos um are told by Inquisitional texts, um, inquisition, reports of interrogations, and very detailed, the Inquisition was a very bureaucratic, punctilious organisation, or at least it tried to be, so there was a wealth of material, Um, and almost because of that wealth, as I was saying earlier, that was the challenge really, to try and get on top of it and understand it and pay due diligence while still trying to tell stories that I wanted to tell and follow the leads that I wanted to follow. I also spent a bit of time myself in Simancas, in the Simancas archives, the state archives. And um, I think, you know, I didn't, I can't say that I contributed any new material to um, the historiography of the Mariscos, except for some documents I did find that I'd never seen quoted anywhere else. And these were these amazing letters written by Spanish uh, mayors of local villages and towns in um 1570 and this was this was the time when the moriscos of Andalusia of, of um of not of andalusia of um, Granada um the former emirate of Granada had just been expelled by under Philip II's orders and they were sent marching through Castile to be dispersed across the country in small pockets and so these mayors, they were like tiny short little letters written on pieces of yellow paper not much bigger than your hand but all saying your Majesty what shall we do with these people this is What we're seeing is terrible. Um, These people, they've got no clothes, they're starving, they're dying of typhus and various diseases. How do we help them? So these are not things that people associate with that period in Spain, you know, those voices. So for me, it was really kind of really moving to come across those documents in Simancos. And to see the kind of the actual letters written out from the paper it was one of the most personally moving encounters with history that I've ever had, because I felt it in my fingers almost, you know. So I touch on that a little bit in the in the book.
0: How does your research advance our understanding of the psychology and sociology of fear?
1: Whether it advances it or not is for, is for readers to judge. Um, but it's certainly true that fear is a crucial factor in understanding why the expulsion of the Moriscos took place, and actually before that, why the expulsion of the Jews took place, because um, fear is what led to both expulsions, in a way, you know, the um, fear that um, fear that uh, Spanish society, the Catholic society, was being corrupted by a sort of alien, heretical presence inside it, um, fear that this danger was worse than it actually seemed, fear that um fear that spain was threatened by internal enemies in the, in the moriscos case and this was different to the Jew, jewish case in the case of the moriscos um in the case of the jews there were, the jews who were expelled from spain or offered the so-called choice between them um, conversion and expulsion had no links to any outside power the moriscos did and because of that that made them even more feared and so you know the fear, there's there's levels of fear that you could say are legitimate, that are based on some rational considerations, and there are levels of fear in this case that are not legitimate, they are based on fantasy. Um, you know, a lot of things were said about the mariscos about that they, they were plotting to overthrow the um, Catholic Spain with the, with the Ottoman Empire or with the um, Protestants of Bayan and so on. A lot of stuff was said. There were snippets of it that were true, but there was also a lot of it that wasn't. Just as we saw with the kind of, um, you know, the whole what went on with the war on terror in the first part of the 21st century. You know, when you start to construct this idea that you have this alien, culturally, religiously um, alien community amongst you, inside you, you can't see it. You can imagine all kinds of things about it. So in some ways, you know, I think this is like almost a kind of classic case in how fear can be politicized and it can lead to, you um, it can lead to historical tragedies, and as I was saying earlier, it's just bad policy, because you know, in the case of the Moriscos, it was a case of um, Christian Spain, or at least sectors of Christian Spain, hated what they feared, and also feared what they hated. Um, and when you enter that kind of way of thinking, you're very um, accessible to all kinds of um, very dubious political moral messages, you know, which ultimately. Um, in the Moriscos case, hovered around the idea of genocidal solutions to this inflated problem. A problem that was, to some extent, created by Catholic Spain, you know, because um, one of the reasons why some Moriscos did plot um, and were hostile to Catholic Spain was because they were being persecuted, because they were being fined, tortured, arrested, um, killed, and so on. So when that happened, you know, you, you have this um, mutually reinforcing dynamic. So I think, yeah, I think fear is um, its something that as you move through the Morisco story, you constantly encounter it. And then particularly towards the um, end of the 16th century, following the, the um, rebellion in um, the Alpujarras in um, 1568 to 1570, following that, you enter this period which you could really almost characterise as the great fear in which all the fears about Moriscos begin to kind of coalesce and begin to kind of accumulate a certain political power that made expulsion seem inevitable and legitimate. So I don't think it's the only time in history we've been there, you know. So, I but, but this is this is an episode you can take and you can find some of these dynamics that you can find in other episodes as well, while bearing in mind that this was a unique episode.
0: Who was the young man of Arevalo? Can you tell us about him?
1: The young man of a was a very interesting character because he was um he was um a morisco, bearing in mind that the word the concept of moriscos was created following the mass conversions of actual Muslims um that took place between um fourteen ninety nine and the early 1520s. So you could say by the end of, um, by say 1526, maybe a little bit longer, there were no Muslims officially living in Spain. They weren't there officially. And this is when the concept of Morisco comes in, because Morisco refers to Muslim converts, converted either voluntarily or by force. So the um, young man of Arevalo was one of those. He was, um, no one knows that much about him except there's just a very short document that he left. Arévalo he, uh, is a town in um, in Castile, and the young man appears to have been a young Muslim who did not really understand what it meant to be Muslim, and spent some time um, moving around the country, visiting what he thought um, communities that were connected to the old Islamic world before 1492. So it was kind of he was trying to kind of reconnect himself with that past, and in a way. His journeys, which kind of just disappear, because they just they, you, there's no real beginning and end to them. His journeys kind of encapsulate part of the tragedy of the Moriscos, who, uh, uh, as the 16th century wore on, they were convert, converted um, to Catholicism by various degrees of coercion, and they found themselves um, in a situation in which they almost belonged to no religion. Many of them, because their memory of their Islamic past that had already begun to fade. They had no teachers or very few teachers. They often had no texts, no Quran's, and so on, no religious schools. So they often didn't know who they were, essentially, or what they were supposed to be, because they didn't feel Catholic either. either. Um, and they didn't even understand what it meant to be Catholic quite often, you know. So bearing in mind that when you look at this, there's never a single monolithic morisco. Um, there are different shades or throughout. But the young man of Arevalo, um was one of the doubters and the questioners you know and and so it's quite poignant to see his journey as he kind of like for example he went to um he went to granada and i have a little quote here i can quote to you if you like um sure. in which he he talks about um this uh mariska who was um an elderly woman in granada he must have met her in the early 1520s probably and so by that time, the Emirate, the former Islamic Emirate of Granada, no longer had long disappeared. It disappeared in 1492, effectively. And yet he he encountered her through word of mouth, and he considered her quite a kind of heroic character. She was an elderly woman, and she was a uh, kind of almost like a kind of holy woman, really, and a healer and a figure of great religious authority. Um, and he was very impressed by her. And this is what he said about her. He said, Granada and all the country round were governed by this mora. She never married and was said never to have known any man. The ordinary people of the the region said that this mora had more credit in matters of our religion and Sunnah, Islamic law, than anybody. She was known by all nations because she showed me letters from all four of the legal schools, besides others from great muftis and scholars. She never allowed herself... Uh, she never allowed herself I I can't see the next word she never allowed herself because she said that the highest form of jihad is to propound our region our religion in lands not ruled by Muslims so this mora was a kind of figure of resistance for the young man of Arevalo and the idea when she says the highest form of jihad is to um, propound our religion in lands not ruled by Muslims this was another thread in what it meant to be a morisco um, some uh, clandestinely continued with their religion precisely because it was repressed and they considered that this was kind of um, a, a sacred duty to do this and a kind of test of their faith and she was one of them so he he, his little document is filled with little conversations he had with people like her and eventually he managed to get money to go he, he managed to get some money to go on the hajj to Mecca but you never know, and that's where the story ends. No one knows if he actually went on it or not. And the thing about his document, the reason why historians pay so much attention to it is there's hardly any voices in which you have Moriscos speaking for themselves outside inquisition interrogations. This is one of the few.
0: In light of what you've alluded to, can you tell us about the Moriscas? How were their experiences unique, distinct, and different?
1: The Moriscas were a quite were a kind of um, a great obsession of um, the Inquisition and of Catholic Spain in general, because you know they were the, because they wore a lot of Morisca women wore the almalafa, which is which, which is the, the kind of um, 16th century version of the niqab, covering face and shoulders and so on, and sometimes nearly full body. They were considered the most obvious expression of an Islamic culture. So if you're an Inquisition official, for example, and you went to some some Granadan village and you saw women dressed like that, you would assume that they were still practicing their religion. So they were very visible like that. Um, And they were often the most visible. A lot of the kind of laws banning uh, Morisco customs and Muslim customs and and so on often return again and again to that subject of the Al-Malafa. But the other thing is it's quite interesting given the 21st century perspective on... um, islamic um female garb is that the inquisition officials often interpreted the alma and the covered face as a sign of promiscuity they um they considered that um muslim women or mariskas as they later became following the forced conversions were engaged in some kind of um, clandestine um, romantic or sexual activity and precisely because of that they wanted to eliminate it so there's that the kind of um, obsession that um, these people had with the way Morisco women looked, and there's also the fact that Morisco women were often some like this Mara that I've just talked about. were often some were often pillars of cultural and religious resistance to inquisitorial oppression. Um, there are many cases of um, in Inquisition documents of Morisco women, including one who just says, "I'm." She, there's one famous one, which she was a woman, was arrested, which part of Spain it was now. But she was arrested. And she said, um, I am not a mora, a moress, but I would be if I could. Um, so she, you know, and others would say, yes, I am a proud um, mora and I, I will never be ashamed of it. And so on. You are in, in the um, war of the Alpujarras, the rebellion of the Alpujarras, um, when the Moriscos rose up against the. Um, the Catholic uh, regime in Granada. Um, the, the women were often amongst the fighters. Um, you often see, test- in, in accounts of that war, you will find frequent descriptions of women attacking um, Castilian soldiers, throwing bricks at them or stones, trying to pull soldiers with their horses. In some of the later resistance that took place while the expulsion was going on in Muela de Cortes in Valencia, when the uh, Moriscos retreated to the mountains to escape, being expelled from Valencia, Moriscos women threw themselves off cliffs with their own children rather than be captured. And um, rather than, well, partly because they would, knew they would lose their children and also because they knew they would be forcibly converted or expelled. So, you know, Moriscos um, played an absolutely crucial role in the whole preservation of Muslim identity within Catholic Spain during the 16th century and were often pillars of resistance to Catholic oppression.
0: How did denunciations of suspected Moriscos and Moriscas unfold? What forms of Uh, betrayal and snitching occurred?
1: It was actually really very easy to do it because the Inquisition always listened to any denunciation. Didn't mean they always believed it. You could be accused of something and then found not guilty. um, you know except when inquisitorial officials were notice notably corrupt and there were you know quite a few cases of, of men who were and who abused their authority your diligent inquisitor wanted to know the truth in their terms of a particular accusation and so on so you could be um well, in one famous case and this was what a particularly this was i think in uh it might have been in murcia there was um a Morisco. Um, he was just uh, a woodcutter. He was seen washing his face and hands at the end of a hard day's work, and so because he was a Morisco, he was known to be a Morisco. Someone denounced him to the Inquisition, um, saying that he was washing himself before prayer, and so he was cap- he was arrested, and he had his hands broken in the interrogations, and he was a ruined man. Um, and this kind of thing could happen really easily if you um, if you were eating couscous, um, if you wore a clean shirt on Fridays, that might be seen as observing um, observing the, that particular holy day. If you were eating couscous, that would, could be seen as a sign of culturally preserving what it meant to be a Muslim. Bearing in mind that the Inquisition didn't really understand the differences between the two if you did certain dances and someone heard you or saw you they could all they had to do was report it to the local inquisitorial official um it, put it this way 16th century spain for moriscos was a place of almost constant danger if you ventured outside morisco areas um it could be different like if you were a worker on one of the christian estates the great christian estates in valencia you could count on the protection of your Christian Lord. You were not particularly be interested in, they actually, they for some reason they thought that um, allowing their Morisco workers to preserve their religion helped make them better workers. So they were quite kind of, um, you can't exactly call it religiously tolerant in modern terms, but they certainly were in 16th century terms. So if you were in an area like that, you could um, feel reasonably safe. But if you went out in any Christian area, um, you could be betrayed at any time. There are cases of people being arrested by the Inquisition because they went. They would say, uh, Mohammed, close my eyes. One one guy said this once when he was um, dozing off. He just said, Mohammed, close my eyes. Somebody else once said, may ha- Mohammed curse you. So just something like that. A Mariska woman was once arrested for saying um, that it was impossible for the Virgin Mary to be a virgin if she was married. Um, you know, asking a question like that, that could get you into trouble if you weren't a Morisco, but if you were a Morisco, it became evidence of something worse. It became evidence of apostasy, and therefore a whole new category of um, that put you onto a new criminal level. So, that, so yes, um, it was r- remarkably easy, and um, you know it required a great deal of caution and care on the behalf, on on the part of Moriscos that wanted to preserve their religion to do it in a way that they wouldn't be detected.
0: How does your study advance our understanding of Christian Muslim relations?
1: Once again, I think that's a judgment that other people would make, not me. Um, I I would say um, one of the things that I wanted to do in that book was remind um, 21st century readers that Islam has always been a part of Europe, um, and that Europeans have been Muslims and Muslims have been Europeans long before these terms were understood in the way that they are now. Um, So and i and i wanted to show um I, I wanted to show that because it's um because the way that muslim communities are often represented in 21st century europe is as if they literally were never ever part of europe it's an argument you hear of here again and again obviously our understanding of what europe is not the same as what it was back then so i wanted to make that point um whether that advances our understanding of christian muslim relations Or not is another matter. I also wanted to show that that um, influence was once positive. I wanted to remind people of some of the positive interactions that took place in Al-Andalus, although that's been done before. I didn't think, I mean I didn't think I was doing anything new there. This has been said before about the the kind of intellectual heritage of Al-Andalus, the kind of the translators, the Christian translators, the um, dissemination of old Arabic and classical texts through Spain, this has been said, but it needs to be said again. So I was quite happy to say it.
0: How does understanding the fate and plight of the Moriscos allow us to appreciate the Jewish history of the Inquisition in a different light?
1: I think um, it's important. To, I think what we can understand is that both groups were victims of the same forces and part of the same historical process. I mean, the, the persecution of, um, jews in spain before the 15th century was mostly was sporadic it did happen and it happened in both muslim and christian parts of spain so it wasn't excluded to either um and and it could wax and wane depending on on what was going on in the society at a particular time but with the mass expulsions of um 13 mass um, conversions rather of 1391 to 1412 this was a different level altogether, because this was um, the mass conversion of tens of thousands of Jews and mass killings as well. Um, and this took place at a time when um, a increasingly an increasingly triumphalist Catholic Spain was beginning to set out to purge itself of what it regarded as its um, alien uh, Semitic past. And so Jews were the first victims of that. And Moriscos, um, to some extent, were affected by those conversions. That in that period, um, that terrible tragedy, which um, Jewish scholars have written about in great detail, Moriscos were also part of it, but not as much at the time. Um, and this was partly because of the same earlier, because partly because um, they were Muslims at that time, were connected, had connections to powerful states outside Spain that could also affect what happened to Christians. So um, Spain's rulers were very conscious of that. And also because Muslims were, there were more of them, they had territory in Granada that they actually controlled politically. So it wasn't feasible to do the kind of things to Muslims at that point, that were done to Jews at that point. But then, you know, following those mass conversions, you had the situation which later applied to the Moriscos Catholic Spain having forced Jews to convert to Catholicism lives quite often at the point of a sword. Then are in the situation of do they believe the people that they've converted? Are they you know how do they test whether these people have become what they used to call good and faithful Christians? So it's the classic case, you know, um, which happened happened with the Moriscos later on. And then you had the fact that not all Jews were converted. So you had two things going on. You had one the convertible of converso crisis which became a kind of obsession in 15th century Spain the idea that um, these people that had been converted could never were not sincere Catholics and never would be and therefore were a heretical presence inside Catholic society and at the same time you had the idea that why were they doing that in part because there were thousands of Jews who still openly practiced their faith so when the Catholic monarchs finally, when they conquered uh, Granada in 1492, their first act was to end this so-called converso problem by giving the Jews who remained openly as Jews the choice to stay or um, convert. And so shortly after that, the same so-called choice was extended to the Muslims of Spain who remained in Spain after um, 1492. But unlike the expulsion of the Jews in 1492, what took place in 1609, 1614, there was no choice. So like more than 100 years of history had to pass before Spain's rulers decided we're not going to extend these people the choice, they all have to go, and in fact so much so that Moriscos, um, who were considered by their own priests to be good and faithful Christians, were still expelled along with those who were not considered to be good and faithful Christians. So. You have both groups um, victims of the same historical forces, but with different outcomes for each one. Because you could say by the end of the 16th century, in fact, quite a long t- by the end of the 17th century, you could say that, in Catholic terms, the Converso problem was more or less solved um, because they'd expelled any they expelled all open practicing Jews, and even though you could still be arrested by the Inquisition until you know later than this than the um, than the 17th century. As a political problem, it was not what it was, what it had been in the 15th century.
0: Can you tell us about the conduct of King Philip III? What does your research reveal about his policies and his legacy?
1: Um, Philip III, Philip III is, of course, the um, the king who ordered the expulsion. And he's the that is pretty much the only thing he did um so Philip III was, um, he, he's, he's a king who doesn't have the kind of historical fame or if, he's not that his father had. His father, Philip II, was the kind of hammer of heresy and so on. His father was um, fought war after war against the Ottomans and also against an attempt. To, he was the kind of um, emblematic king of the Counter-Reformation. Philip III was a much more minor figure not only in terms of what he achieved but in terms of who he was as a person he was famously um he was famously lazy although that's possibly been overstated because philip iii did a lot of his state business while on hunting expeditions or hanging out in his hunting lodges so even though he doesn't appear much in um council of state meetings where crucial decisions were taken he did give the orders and and he did he did take decisions and a lot of it was done also through his favorite the, um, the Duke of Lerma. The Duke of Lerma was his valued or favorite, and he was his chief minister. And Lerma is another person crucial to the expulsion because he he was always there when all the key decisions were taken, or at least he ensured that decisions were taken that he wanted, even though he hardly ever, he, he actually attended very few council of state meetings. So you have to look at Philip III and the Duke of Lerma as a pair, really. Um, one without the other would have not accomplished what they what they actually did. And so Philip III, in his terms of the expulsion, um, I used to compare him this I know this is um, not an entirely valid pa- parallel, but I couldn't help myself to um, George W. Bush because um, there's the sense of Philip III trying to please his father. His father Philip II never thought much of his son. Um, he he thought he was not not fit to be a king. Um, and that he was politically inadequate, and so on. But he had no choice. Um, so Philip III inherited the throne, and his great contribution, in a way, was the expulsion. And so he's, he's, he's a surprisingly mediocre figure for such a staggering historical tragedy crime. But then, you know, that's not the—that's by no means the only case in history where you've had people of that kind of caliber who are still instrumental in tragedies and crimes much bigger than themselves so he was a, an example of that
0: can you tell us about the morisquios who were they what can you the, the, tell ma- us about them
1: the morisquios were um children of moriscos um and they were they were kind. they were very important because um to put this in context the concept of the morisquios really begins to emerge at the end, towards the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th. In other words, at the time when discussions are taking place at the highest levels of the Spanish government about what to do about this so called Morisco problem. So, um, one of the reasons in 1582, expulsion was considered officially for the first time uh, and was accepted um, by the Council of State, but it wasn't implemented until 1609. So that's quite a delay um but it's not an entirely delay because um what the crown and the church wanted to do was prove to themselves and prove to everybody else to the outside world for that matter that the that, that expulsion was the only possible solution and one of the reasons why they found it difficult to um justify this was the problem of the Morisquios. because they had to set, they they were facing the problem what do we do if we expel every morisco they would tell themselves does that include children? Because they haven't got, they don't have um, the sin of their um, apostatizing parents. So how can we expel them? And then it would go down even younger. What about babies? Do they carry the sin of their um, parents in their blood? Um, so these debates went on and on. These torturous debates within the church, between the church and the crown, and so on. And so the Morisquios were the children who, um, when the expulsion took place, they still haven't entirely resolved what to do with them. I mean, um, there was one school of thought was, we keep them all, take them away from their parents, and then bring them up as Christians. But then, because a lot of these churchmen really believed that children carried the sin or the perversion or the heresy of their parents in their blood, they couldn't, they thought that was the wrong thing to do because they thought if you bring these children up, they're like seeds, these seeds will um, eventually grow into um, Muslims again and we'll be faced with the same problem. So um, they never really entirely resolved it. And what happened in the process of the expulsion, the chaotic expulsion in which people were being rounded up, herded onto ships in Valencia, something like 130,000 people removed in the space of little more than two or three months, in that chaos and mayhem. Um, sometimes children were taken away from their parents, literally on the docks, um, and they were brought up as Christians. Um, and sometimes Morisco parents gave up their children because they thought, at least you'll stay alive if you stay in Spain and you'll be looked after. And others were taken into orphanages, and then others were simply pushed onto the ships and sent away. So that was the case of the Moriscos. So not very much is known about what happened to them afterwards, to those that remained in Spain, these this this is the whole thing with the expulsion in general. Is um, a lot of Moriscos re- returned to Spain, and sometimes various times after being expelled. Sometimes they were caught and they expelled again, and then more. You know, sometimes uh, three or four times it could be. So these histories sort of just fade out. They just fade out. There is no documentation. There is nothing, and obviously nobody had any interest in. Um, preserving any documentation because it's not in the interest of the church to trace the histories of these people. They didn't bother. So it's a it's a it's one tragic component of the expulsion, and then it just sort of ends, and nothing is really known about it after 1609, 1610.
0: 1492 was the year in which the Catholic monarchs in Spain gave their Jewish subjects the quote-unquote choice between Conversion to Catholicism and expulsion. Why did they not do the same with the Muslims who remained in Spain after the fall of Granada? What explains this difference? What changed their minds? Can you elaborate on this?
1: I I can I had a, I elaborate it in my book for about three hundred odd pages. So I'm going to I'll keep I'll keep quite a short elaboration now because it's the, it's the crucial question, of course. I mean, um, one answer to that question is what we discussed before, that um, the Jews were more powerless than the, than the um, Mariscos were. Put it this way, 1492, the Catholic monarchs have only just conquered Granada after a war of 10 years. 10 years that literally drained the resources of the Spanish crown that actually involved soldiers from all over Europe joining in this kind of mini-crusade, what they thought saw as a mini-crusade against Islam. Um, So at that point in time, the um, Catholic monarchs were in no position to start thinking about mass conversions or mass expulsions. Um, They still had a lot. Granada had about um, 350,000, 400,000 Muslims living in it. There were Muslims scattered all over Spain with different relationships to the Christian communities around them. Like in Valencia, for example, you had about more or less hovered around 129,000 Muslims throughout most of the 16th century. These were people who were protected by their Christian lords because they were regarded as useful serfs and useful laborers. And that sometimes translated into a kind of 16th century tolerance. You would get Christian lords who would actually allow um, Muslims to build mosques in their own lands and so on, and they worship only, worship openly. So there was a political problem, the security problem. You can't engage in a process of mass conversion or expulsion, dealing with um, a, quite a sizable minority with powerful military and political connections abroad in the Ottoman Empire, in Morocco, and so on. And also, that you're likely to meet political opposition from within Spain itself. Um, So for these reasons, they didn't do it, even though some people wanted them to do it. There were voices. No one really knows who they are. This is just referred to in the chronicles and documents that some people urged the Catholic monarchs to do to the Muslims what they'd done to the Jews. Um, So they just weren't in a position to do it. And then it became a kind of... um, When the Archbishop of Toledo, um, Fisneros, came to um, came to Granada in um, about 1495, he was shocked and horrified by the open practice of Islam that was going on in Granada. And this was why did this happen? Because in order to negotiate the surrender of the Emirate of Granada, the Catholic monarchs, <coughs> excuse me, the Catholic monarchs negotiated these agreements called um, capitulaciones, the capitulations, with Boabdil, the last king. Of Granada. And these capitulations seem to lay the basis for coexistence between um, Catholicism and Islam, at least in Granada. Um, And this was already going on, by the way, in other parts of Spain, because bearing in mind that um, in early 16th century Spain, you still have the legacy of the eight centuries of. islamic rule and then partial Islamic rule and partial christian rule and you had this kind of these agreements that had been made at various times still carried weight in 16th century spain just but the pressures were bearing down on them and Thisneros was an example of that because when he went to granada he thought this is unacceptable and he began to kind of um push this process of forced conversion aiming first of all at these christian women who were married to muslims he thought they were the kind of weak link so here they would be arrested they would be brought to um, the inquisition or to the church and they'd be interrogated and pressured to abandon their new faith and so on and so forth this was a different model to what the actual archbishop of um, granada Fernando de talavera who promoted he promoted this idea that we can win these muslims over through a prolonged period of um generosity explaining our faith to them and so on so he was a kind of um promoter of a certain form of assimilation without coercion this was very different and because it because of his um aggressive belligerent um catholicism he pro- he he pro- prompted a rebellion in granada the first of not not by no means the last of, and it quickly spread outside the city of granada to the alpujarras and to the whole emirate, and the spanish um, crown had some trouble subduing that rebellion and when they'd done it it was they basically took advantage of opportunity they said okay these people rebelled we're not going to expel them all but we will convert them um they must all become catholics and that's what they did so by 1502 that was done in granada and then you have the problem you've got um a forced You had the same problem you had with the Jews earlier on. You forcibly converted um, 350 odd thousand Muslims in one part of the country, while other Muslims are worshipping openly in other parts. So, through (sighs) over the next two decades, you had this rolling process of conversions taking place, which eventually um, annihilated Islam in Spain. And then, you know, from that, having achieved that by the 1520s, Catholic Spain was then forced with the problem of policing these people's faith, convincing itself that these people really were good and faithful Christians. And all the things that, in, that came from that, repression, persecution, rebellion, bad policy, uh, f- failed policies of um, of attempting to evangelize in areas where Muslims, these newly converted muslims would hardly ever see a priest for years even months and sometimes years so a lot of them would simply relapse back to catholicism back to islam rather because they didn't know what was expected of them so it was a, you had this incoherent policy of sometimes allowing pe- what the inquisition called periods of grace edicts of grace in which they'd give um they'd give the morisco say 30 years and they'd say during that 30 years you have to pay us a certain amount of money in return, we won't persecute. But at the end of those 30 years, we want to see signs that you have, uh, that you are a good and faithful Christians. So, this is what happened for more than 100 years before Spain's rulers finally concluded that this can't be done, it's not working, and the only thing we can do is destroy these people. But even then, when they'd reach, begun to reach that consensus, the question was what do you do with these people? So, various quite genocidal things were discussed um, at the highest levels of the Spanish state, there were solutions proposed such as um, take the entire Morisco population, put them in ships, and then scuttle the ships and drown them. This was one of the things that was discussed. Another was castrate all Morisco males, also discussed. Another was um, round them all up, the entire population, and put them in a kind of camp-like villages somewhere in the middle of Spain where they could be controlled and only used to kind of serve in the king's galleys, and so on. So these things were discussed. And what you have is the escalation of the possible solutions to the point when Spain's rulers thought of expulsion as being as generous thing to do. Because after all, they weren't killing them, they are expelling them, even though lots of them were actually during the expulsion. So this is the kind of logic that, that unfolded over those 100 years. And it's a complex process, you know, of how it happened, and who did what, and what was failed, what was tried, and so on and so forth. But the basic problem stems from the same problem that Spain had created for itself following the forced conversions of the Jews the century before. If you hate a particular minority, if you hate them, and then you make them be like you in order to supposedly remove that hate, you never really remove it. Um, all you do is create a situation in which you don't actually believe, because you hate these people so much. You don't believe they're capable of becoming like you. You never really believe they can become like you. So even when Moriscos did, uh, powerful people in Spain refused to believe it. And then, um, so they almost created. This, they, you know, to some extent, they created a situation in which the, the logic was to remove them all. It became, it became, you know, the the final answer to this problem that they continually identified and couldn't solve.
0: Who was Archbishop Rivera? Can you tell us about him?
1: Archbishop Rivera is very much an example of that, precisely that type, because he was, um, he was an aristocratic um, churchman from Andalusia who became Archbishop of Valencia in, if I remember correctly, it would have been around the 1560s or 70s. And he was um, a vociferous, anti-Morisco um, polemicist who had connections, because he was Archbishop of Valencia, high connections to the Spanish crown. He had the ear of Philip II and his counsellors, um, and he had the ear of the Duke of Lerma. And he began as somebody who um, seemed to be, when he first arrived in Valencia, he pursued a policy of... Um, of conversion, explaining the faith, um, taking priests to kind of remote areas, Morisco areas, um, and trying to kind of um, teach them the faith rather than do it at the point of a whip or the point of of an out of the faith. So, but he quickly became disillusioned and came to believe that um, the Moriscos were incapable of becoming good Catholics and became a fierce and ferocious advocate of expulsion. He wrote a famous um, letter, more than one, but he wrote one particular fa- famous letter in 1582 that had um, that had a lot of influence on the debates that were taking place at the time about the Morisco question, um, in which he said, these people are incapable of transformation, we should expel them. But interestingly enough, he had a, it wasn't quite as straightforward as that, because what he said was, we should try to convert them, um, but only to show that they can't be converted. So he actually gave instructions to his own priests in Valencia once. He said, go out there and preach to the Moriscos, but know that they will never receive anything you tell them. And, th- and, and therefore, in doing that, you will be doing a great service to Christianity. What did he mean by that? He meant that if you can prove these people are incapable, then we can justify in Christian terms their expulsion. So he was a. He, he also was very conscious of the lords of Valencia, the political influences people had, their resistance to the Inquisition and their resistance to um, the expulsion. When it actually took place, when the expulsion was, actually began in Valencia in September 1609, he gave a famous sermon in the Cathedral of Valencia celebrating it while well, chaos was unfolding all through Valencia, bearing in mind that Moriscos had just been given instructions. To leave, to to be prepared to leave their houses in three days, gather up all their possessions, sell what they can, and then they're going to be and then march to the to the ports where they'll be transported. So Ribera gave this kind of half hallucinatory and half visionary speech, um, describing this as some kind of um, revelation of prophecy, almost that this expulsion was taking place. And people say that on his deathbed he was, um, he felt. Guilty, he expressed guilt about the impact expulsion had had on the economy of Valencia and on the, um, because it did have significant impact. But he never expressed any regret about um, what happened to the people that
0: he expelled. So he was a kind
1: of crucial figure, really, in in the whole, in the last decades of the 16th century, the beginning of the 17th.
0: How was the persecution of the Moriscos related to the broader geopolitical and security context? taking place at the time, particularly in regard to Spain's relations with the Ottoman Empire? How realistic were Spanish fears of a potential Morisco insurrection?
1: That's um, that's a, a very important question, really, because I mean, the answer is, it was inseparable from it. I mean, put it this way, had there not been that geopolitical context you could possibly imagine that perhaps Spain wouldn't have gone for the expulsion option. And when I say the geopolitical concept, um, process, I mean during much of the the first three quarters of the 16th century, Spain was involved in a in a fairly brutal um, and all-consuming, not entirely all-consuming, but um, uh, certainly an enterprise that a demanded a lot of resources competition with the ottoman empire for control of the western mediterranean Um, this was a time when when you had the battle of lepanto 1571 you had the um ottoman siege of malta 1565 so rumors of an ottoman invasion constantly percolate through the discourse about the moriscos in the 16th century and um there's always this idea that they're a fifth column that they're um they're colluding there were often stories reported to the inquisition about Morisco plots to do this to do that um to in- invite um ottoman armies into spain and so on but um a lot of a lot of this stuff was based on very flimsy intelligence information you know there are some episodes that you can pinpoint that there were people that were interested in pursuing plots that certainly had sympathies towards their kind of Muslim to Muslim countries outside and saw the Ottoman sultan as their protector and so on. There were Moriscos that did think that. There were Moriscos that wanted that, that wanted an invasion of Spain. But the question is whether they actually did anything about it. And a lot of the plots that appear in the documents are pretty flimsy, really. I mean, sometimes it'll just be an Inquisition official in Aragon heard two tailors talking about an Ottoman invasion, and thinking and saying how good it would be, so that's it, and that would be it. That'll be enough to get them arrested, and then that'll percolate upwards to the Council of State, and that'll be ah, CC. So see. I mean, when I say this, not everybody believed that. There were, there were, there were, despite the fact that intelligence in those days, the ability that um, intelligence services had, because to what to some extent the Inquisition was an intelligence service. So, given that its um, abilities were quite limited in comparison to the 21st century, there were still Spanish statesmen and military army officers who understood perfectly well that there was no real threat from the Moriscos in Spain. Um, but then um, you had the Alpujarras Revolt in 1568-70, and this was a real rebellion in the Alpujarras that shook Spain. It was the most serious civil war in spanish history before the civil war of the 20th century it was um a brutal conflict that involved that had foreign intervention um, there were there were volunteers who came so they called themselves Mujahideen, who came from um turkey from the ottoman empire from north africa who fought on the side of the moriscos in spain so this was real and it shocked um spanish officialdom no end but as also many Spanish officials pointed out, the revolt itself took place was a was a direct response to Christian persecution, which was even more severe in Granada than it was in other parts of Spain. So you have that, and you also have the um, the fact that Moriscos in Aragon in the in the north were sometimes conspired with Bayernese Protestants and um, the Principality of Bayern in France. Um, there was a certain sympathy. Between Moriscos and Spain's Protestant enemies, and so you know there were discussions, flirtations. You'd find a group here that had had a conversation with the um, the king of um, the the regent of of Bayan. So stuff like this did happen. And the other thing to bear in mind, in terms of the geopolitical context, is the whole corsair issue. The corsairs um, were basically semi semi they were privateers basically muslim privateers that would attack the spanish coast from north africa from tunis or algiers in search of slaves or war booty um and they this was something that this was a genuine threat that spain had good reason to be afraid of and alarmed by and had also very difficult to protect itself against because of the long extended spanish coastline and so on so Moriscos was sometimes suspected of being allied to these corsairs and there were cases when there were but you know uh, once again it's uh, is what you notice in the discussions that took place in the documents about this problem is how easily and readily um these things were inflated exaggerated or simply fantasies um sometimes you would simply get something like an official an inquisitional official in valentia has said that a Turkish prophet has arrived in Valencia who is proposing to um, in, attack the crown, or something like that, something on that almost infantile level. And so there wouldn't necessarily be any follow up for that. It was enough just for one person to say that, and that would count as done deal. And so, you know, you have this the combination of the real and the fantasy um, of the Morisco security threat is actually um, a crucial contributing factor to the decision. The spanish eventually took they just thought they came to the conclusion that it doesn't matter if it's fantasy or real the best way to solve it for good is just simply remove these people all together then, then we won't have a problem
0: who was Inigo hortado de mendoza can you tell us about him
1: Inigo hortado de mendoza was one of the captain generals of granada and he was the captain general just before the um Malista uprising in granada that took place in sixty eight, and he was a member of the Mendoza family, one of the great Spanish Renaissance families and the word liberal can't be used here because it doesn't mean much when discussing 16th century Spain but nevertheless he, because of his family's experience, uh, because, because, his, because his family had this tradition of being the captain generals in Granada, they were not at all interested in the um, idea that they recognised the difference between religion and culture. They didn't approve of the decrees emanating from Granada Church or from the Crown banning um, say Muslim dress or Muslim dances or Muslim, um, uh, Muslim foods and so on. They didn't approve of the surveillance of their religion. They were It was enough for them to, to have a kind of coexistence. So Inigo, um, in particular, when the um, famous Granada Pragmatic was enacted by Philip II in 1566. This was a ferociously anti morisco Pragmatic, um, which was um, enacted um, after consultation with some of the more extremist forces within the Spanish church and crown. It basically proposed the complete abolition of Morisco Granada in a space of two or three years. Much of what it asked was impossible. Like it said, for example, all Arabic documents must cease to be published and be destroyed within two or three years. All uh, Moriscos must learn Castilian in three years. So, this was the question about that. The question about that pragmatic, which historians have often asked, is: Was it really intended to have an effect, or was it actually intended to provoke a rebellion to justify further repression? The answer to that question is: It's not. It's not really fully known. But Mendoza was one of the people who tried to stop the pragmatic. He actually rode, he wasn't told about it until it had actually been enacted. So it was a sign of the displacement of his family as political actors in Granada that the crown, Philip II, chose not to tell him and instead operated through other people. So um Mendoza actually rode to him to to Madrid to speak to the king to try and dissuade him, saying you know, you can't implement this, it'll be disastrous. There'll be that it'll provoke a rebellion, so on and so forth. King ignored it, and there was a rebellion, and everything that happened, happened, as Mendotho said it would. What forms of
0: torture were Moriscos subjected to?
1: Um, Pretty much the same kind that all um, supposed religious dissidents were exposed to in Spain. Um, They were, bearing in mind the Inquisition, the reputation the Inquisition has, has... and this is not at all to say that the Inquisition was a benevolent organization, but there's sometimes partly because of people like Edgar and Poe, because of um, Napoleon. Napoleon's troops invented these fantastic tortures used by the Inquisition, supposedly used by the Inquisition when they, during the um, Peninsular War, they said, for example, they found, I think in Madrid, they found an iron maiden with spikes um that the victims were put inside and then it was closed on them and so on the inquisition would never do anything like that partly because they they had this um prohibition against spilling blood so in terms of torture it would be things like ropes stretching beatings they did despite the prohibition on spilling blood they did spill it um but basically the punishment of relaxing to the secular arm as they called it in other words execution burning at the stake was not carried out by them um, so that was a specific thing. So the Mariscos was subject to all that, all that whole range of tortures. Um, but before they got to that stage, bearing in mind the, Marisc- the Inquisition did give people a chance. So if you were um, if you were arrested by the Inquisition, for example, and accused of some kind of some form of apostasy, if you admitted it straight off, um, you could be you could get off with just a fine. Um, and if you did it again, you could still get a fine, but if you did it a third time, you were very unlikely to get that. So um, there were levels of punishment, and the Moriscos, like the Jews, were subjected to them. But the, but the Inquisition also relied heavily, especially in the second half of the 16th century, relied heavily on the Moriscos for income. So fining became a very attractive form of punishment to them. So sometimes they would, you know, they would find people. It was a good thing for them to do to find some uh, merchant families of moriscos because they had more money. And then you could extract more from them. So sometimes it literally acted as a kind of protection bracket, really. And then there was, of course, last but not least, there was the service on the king's oars. Um, Given the wars that um, Philip II was fighting in the um, Western Mediterranean, he needed ships and he needed oarsmen. And so the Inquisition was one of the sources of those crews. So if you if you, you if you serve say three or or ten years on the king's oars, that was tantamount to a death sentence because you you know you were not likely to survive ten years in those conditions. So the full range really, and you know once again as I was saying earlier, these this repression could sometimes be held in abeyance. <clears throat> For example, in um, fifteen twenty four when um, twenty six when Charles I of Spain went to Granada for his honeymoon, uh, the royal congregation of Granada, the Granadan church, um, introduced um, some very severe anti-Muslim um, decrees that were later became part of the Granada pragmatic. But they said, and this was agreed with Charles's approval, we won't impose these in return for money. So the Morisco nobility of Granada paid, essentially bribed the king. Not to torment the population, so you would have these periods like that, these so-called periods of grace, and then you would have periods of repression, and that's how it kind of unfolded throughout those throughout the century.
0: How did Moriscos go about keeping Islamic religious practices covertly? What steps did they take to conceal and disguise their conduct?
1: Um, well, actually, that's an, that's an interesting question because they did in lots of different kinds of
0: ways. Bearing
1: in mind, and this is a very important thing to bear in mind when to think about when looking at the Moriscos is because um, you had Moriscos in one part of the country were not necessarily the same as Moriscos in another. And their contact with Islam and the sources of Islamic doctrine would vary depending on their proximity to North Africa or to the outside world, you know. So you might get cases like this, for example. This is, um, uh, a Morisco al key al key would be like an imam, I guess, like a religious teacher named Damian Doblet from the town of Pugnol in in Valencia. He was arrested for a second time on account of his alleged Islamic practices. And this is what one witness describes as the reason for his arrest. They said, on many Friday nights, the Moriscos and Moriscos went to Doblet's house dressed in finery and made up. Suspecting that he was preaching the sect of Muhammad, one night we determined to take them by surprise and finally, in the main door lock, we entered by a false door. We found Doblet seated in a chair with a lute in his hands and one foot unshod, and a Morisco held an open book in front of him from which he read and sang. So, you could get situations like that, um, in which Moriscos um, would have um, prayer groups, open gatherings, quasi mosques, secret mosques, and so on. Um, but then, depending on the proximity to um, Christian society and the presence of the Inquisition, you would also get more covert forms of cultural resistance. Like, for example, um, if you were married in church, um, you could be immediately, not preferably that same day, you would undergo um, a Muslim marriage ceremony to kind of counteract the influence of it. Um, if a baby was baptized, they would take the baby home and wash the baby the, the baptismal chrism away with breadcrumbs or water. And then go through the uh, Morisco um, fada name ceremony, giving it um giving the baby an Islamic name that would be used only in well, that child was within the Islamic community and so on. So you had all these all these kind of forms of covert resistance. If you um if a family member was dying, you wouldn't tell the priest because you did because the crucial thing for Catholics, Jews, and Muslims in not only in 16th century Spain, but long before that, was the issue of salvation. Everybody wanted to be saved, and religion was the way to do it. And so, you know, the the worst thing that could happen to a devout Muslim family or Morisco family would be if their loved ones received extreme unction, because that would not guarantee salvation. Or if they were buried in a Christian cemetery, um, and so so there were there were various ways of of trying to evade these strictures, and the Inquisition a battle kind of went on between the Inquisition and these forms of clandestine um, cultural resistance. So, in the Inquisition would be on the lookout for them. The Inquisition would occasionally dig up a grave, for example, to find out if it had been buried, the body had been buried according to Islamic custom or according to Christian custom. Um, I was the, was the body turned on its side. Turn it with his face toward Mecca. If it was, if the Inquisition found that, then they could trace the family responsible and they could arrest them and so on. So, um, this is how it went on. This was the 16th century for many Moriscos living that kind of life. The other way, another form of preserving their culture was to tell stories. Uh, Moriscos would tell stories about um, famous um, Muslim warriors from the distant Islamic past, like Kakayuna, I think her name was. Famous generals from the past. These would be like family tales told over again and so on. So there were forms of resistance that in some ways, although they were Islamic, kind of paralleled what Protestants were sometimes doing in Catholic countries and what Catholics were sometimes doing in Protestant countries. These kind of things went this was part of the Renaissance world, really, was this world of hidden religions.
0: Can you comment on the decision-making processes behind the expulsion despite described in your book?
1: Um, I can, t- the decision, the actual decision making processes were taken, first of all, by the, by the king, They that was the final decision, whether the king approved it, but the actual decision, the crucial institution was the council of state. And that was an institution that the Duke of Lerma had a great deal of influence on. So the council of state where the king's ministers would discuss these different options, um, but the king signed them off. And then, once the, once the king had signed them off, then through the Council of State, particular um, duties would be given to organise this whole process. For example, one of the key figures in the um, in the expulsion of the Muslims from Valencia was the Marquis of Carathena, who was the um, Viceroy of Valencia. So he was given the task of organising the expulsion in Valencia in September two um, thousand. 2000- uh, so what i saying, in, in September 1609. So Carathena prepared for this some months before, and that involved things like um, bringing up troops um, on the border between Valencia and Castile to stop Moriscos from retreating inland, uh, commissioning ships from across Europe and so on. So once the decision was approved by the king, it, felt it, it moved down towards designated officials. Carathena, in this case, and later on, um, the Count of Salazar was given the um, overall um, responsibility for completing the, the um, expulsion in other parts of Spain. So he would take specific choices. He would make. He would make decisions about. He would be in charge of the process of discovering who was a morisco, a huge problem as he as he found, because sometimes this wasn't clear who was and who wasn't. So this became a kind of chasing cats game. To some extent in which he would go he would hear that there was such and such a place where there were riscos. he would go there he would try and determine who they were sometimes the priest would say these people are not riskers they're good christians and that sometimes the priest did that because he was protective of his parishioners and so these officials on the ground took these decisions but they were very powerful i mean um, marcus um the um the account this count spent years galloping up and down Spain, going from one place to another, trying to chase every last morisco, because one of the things that Philip III and the Duke of Lerma insisted on was that every last morisco must be expelled. It was a phrase that crops up again and again. And, And it only stopped in 1614 when the Council of State decided this can't be done anymore. It just simply can't be done. We can't expel them to the... And this is consuming too much, too many resources, so we're gonna stop. So that's kind of how the how the kind of decision making um played out. The church also uh, high church officials also had a lot of influence as well. They didn't necessarily take decisions, but what they said had a huge bearing on what the council of state would say and also on on what the king would do. And that's why Archbishop Rivera was so influential. I mean, he was listened to. Um and so you had kind of these lobbyists like Rivera. Flitting around, even though they had no political power in themselves to implement an expulsion, they could certainly provide all the arguments for one.
0: Who was Bernardino de Velasco? Can you say more about him?
1: The Count of Salazar is the the official we've just been discussing, really, and he was um he was the man implemented who who was given the task of continuing the expulsion after Valencia, and he was um not that much is known about him except that he was um an indefatigable um instrument of expulsion i mean he really did try to chase down every last marisco uh, he called it he, he called it the machine of expulsion the expulsion machine was the word he used to describe it and he saw himself as the man operating that machine and um you know there's a kind of um kind of pathos about his task, really, because um, he his encounters with Moriscos in different parts of Spain show and reveal again and again the fallacy between the, behind the whole idea of what Moriscos were, because by 16, oh, 1610, um, a lot of Moriscos really were good and faithful Christians. After all, it was like more than 100 years um, since there had been any kind of um, open Islamic worship in Spain. And many were, and you find again and again in um, Salazar's interactions with priests, with bishops, you find these priests and bishops actually saying to him, no, look, these Moriscos are actually better Christians than they're old Christians. They, that was the category they used, new Christians. Uh would be, once upon a time, it would have been new Christians from Jews, and then it was new Christians from Muslims. So they would say these new Christians from Muslims are actually better Christians than many of the old Christians that we have. But because Salazar was under orders to remove them anyway to the last Morisco, if there was any trace of uh, Morisco heritage in the family that he could detect in a parish record or something like that, then he would expel them until finally they abandoned
0: it. Can you tell us about the War of the Alpujarras? What caused it? What was it? the significance of the war of the Alpujarras. um the,
1: the war of the alpuharas was caused by the um granada pragmatic that we discussed earlier um the decree um essentially banning any overt expression of islam or not not necessarily islam as a religion but islam as a culture in granada and that was enacted in 1566 um and It was considered by many Christian officials, including Inigo de Mendoza, who we discussed earlier, it was was considered to be a disastrous um, decision. It's still not fully understood why it took place, but whatever the reasons for it, it provoked this fearsome rebellion in which the Moriscos across Granada rose up against any form of um, Catholicism Quite often in the early phases, they massacred entire Christian populations in the villages um, where they lived. Um, and to some extent, you could consider this a kind of um, uh, a semi-colonial revolt, really, because you know the history of Granada in the 16th century is to some extent a kind of settled colonial history. You literally have Christians moving into, Christ- moving into um, what used to be. Muslim villages in Granada and taking over buildings, Mm -hmm. um, dominating them, priests imposing punishments and fines and demanding bribes and so on from the the Moriscos who lived there. So this was like more than half a century of bitter resentment building up. You had Christian land grabs using the courts to get hold of land that had um, belonged to Moriscos. So when this rebellion took place, it exploded um, with extreme violence. There were lots of gruesome anecdotes um, of what happened to Christians in some of those Bernardin villages and these atrocity stories contributed as well to the kind of um, demonic image of the Morisco as kind of um, as barbarians not Spanish from somewhere else and so on. It lasted um, two years effectively and during that time there were times when Spain Feared that it would actually lose part of its own territory, especially when um, foreign volunteers came in to join um, on the Morisco side. People estimate that there might have been four to five thousand um, foreign volunteers who Mujahideen who fought with the um, with the Moriscos. Um, the, re- the rebellion collapsed in the end because, well, because it couldn't really it never because it never really became a fully fully fledged attempt. To occupy Granada from the outside, it never that foreign force remained just that a small foreign volunteer force. It was defeated, um, and then in 1570, the King Philip II took his decision to try and solve the Granadan problem by essentially dispersing the entire Morisco population of Granada across Spain in different pockets, and these people became known as the um, the Granadan. Granada Moriscos, the Moriscos of Granada, they were often arrested in various inquisitorial um, situations across Spain, specifically because they were seen as Moriscos from Granada, who were considered more dangerous than any other Morisco. So um, you could see, you could consider the end of the Alpujarras War and expulsion within the expulsion, if you like, it was a kind of rehearsal for what came later on a national level. And also one last point made about that. The um, Alpojaros War, there was, to some extent, a kind of before and after situation, because um, the, the war seemed to confirm all the worst fears and prejudices that Christians had about um, about Mariscos. And so afterwards, you notice the kind of conversation about expulsion really does gain strength because of that revolt.
0: In what ways, if at all, should the Spanish Inquisition be considered a distinct and unique atrocity vis-a-vis others? What, if anything, is different about the Spanish Inquisition vis-a-vis other manifestations of mass killing and genocide before it, contemporaneous with it and after it? What, if anything, differentiates the Spanish Inquisition from other historical atrocities and tragedies?
1: Um, everyone is different, really. And the Spanish Inquisition, first of all, I, I don't associate the Spanish Inquisition with genocide as such. I don't think anybody does um the spanish inquisition was um the spanish inquisition was an organization created by the catholic monarchs in 1477 to deal with the so-called converso problem and it was created in order to um police the faith to guard and protect the country against heresy and to punish anybody engaging in apostasy so it developed its um it had its own particular ways of operating. It had its own particular forms of... Um, it had certain forms of surveillance that you can say, you can use the word inquisition to describe the way certain police states behaved in the 20th century and so on. The um, the attempt to kind of police, to get inside people's minds and find out what they thought they were thinking and doing behind closed doors and so on. But um, it was an organization in which violence was and coercion were crucial to the way it operated, but it was not intended to be genocidal. As such, it was intended to do just that: to police the faith and use fear as a way of doing that. But fear and fear was part of the Inquisition's the raison d'etre and its modus, modus operandi. But it wasn't the only one. the um, The Inquisition could be generous in its own terms, like it could. As I I mentioned earlier, you could be fined in the first instance. You could get a second chance and even a third chance sometimes. So it's kind of, um, given the often ferocious violence that Protestant states were using in the same period, it's often striking why the Inquisition has got this peculiar reputation. I mean, I'm by no means saying it was a benign organisation, but in terms of the actual death toll, the people killed by the Inquisition was far less than were killed by many protestant states during the so-called um the witch crazes and so on that took place in the centuries after that the inquisition for example was actually quite rational about witchcraft um it was actually quite skeptical it, re- it refused to accept that there was a witchcraft in um in and the basque country in the early 17th century when there, at the same time as a um there was a the french king um had sent um an official to investigate the so-called witch um cult in the basque country in which this this person tortured and killed hundreds of people the inquisition rejected the idea that that cons- so-called conspiracy had spread into spain so th- it could be surprisingly rational in its own terms it wasn't a quite wild out of control organization at the same time an organization like that had officials who were individually corrupt who use their position to kind of gain money sex power um so you know you have any organization like that that's given that kind of power of coercion and violence has certain similarities to others but i definitely wouldn't i would take out the word genocidal in describing the inquisition i said cert- it's another matter if you talk about the expulsion um i think there's certain argument there's certain Aspects of the expulsion that you can say were genocidal, while uh, while recognizing that um this term was not established until many centuries later. But I would leave the Inquisition out of that particular discussion.
0: Can you tell us about Francisco Núñez Mule? Why is I he can.
1: Yeah, he was a very interesting character who is famous for one thing, really. um Francisco Núñez Mule was a Morisco noble who um, tried to prevent the Granada Pragmatic from being enacted. Um, And he he did that by writing a famous document, which is a kind of essential document for anybody visiting that history. It's known as the Memorandum of Francisco de Nietzsche. And essentially, it was written to uh, Pedro de Deza, who was an inquisitor and was the head of the um, Audiencia, the local regional court, Habsburg court, in granada the arientia was the organization that enacted the pragmatic and detha was a particularly sinister character who had financial interests in getting hold of in in granada and financial interests in um destroying morisco granada and also religious ones as well and also just sheer career advancement this is another thing you get by the way referring back to our previous conversation about the inquisition a lot of these inquisitorial officials were just simply careerists, if you like, um, within, a, within a very different context. And they would just do what was required to do to prosper. And data was a bit like that. And so when he enacted this pragmatic, um, Moulet sent in this memorandum, which is a very detailed and really fascinating document, especially in the whole period of history in which it was written, not only Spanish but European as well, in which he tried to convince um, death are not to do it, on the grounds, essentially on the grounds that many of the things the pragmatic wanted to ban were not religious. He would say things like um, the dances that you say um, that you want to prohibit, that His Majesty intends to prohibit, there's no religious component to them. He would say they're just cultural dances, regional dances, just like you have the jota in Aragon and other regional dances. This is just one of them. So why ban them, say? Um, and then he would point out the kind of absurdity and the difficulty. He, what he said in his memorandum, "He said you can't get people here to speak Castilian, uh, to speak Spanish or Castilian in three years." He said there are people here they couldn't learn it in twenty years, um, and so on. So he makes a very he makes a lot of very sophisticated arguments about culture and religion and the difference between the two, and also quite kind of basic arguments like that. You know that this absurd. You can't simply demand that people learn a language in three years. And anyway, he made it very eloquently and unforgettably and he was completely ignored um, because Datha was not the kind of guy who would respond to these kind of arguments and nor was Philip II, crucially because he was the one who gave the order. So, you know, it's important for that reason really and, and not much is known about Moulet apart from that.
0: On, on page 42, it's, you write as follows. After centuries of conversion and intermarriage between all of Spain's ethnic groups. Few 15th century Spaniards could claim to possess pure bloodlines, but the fantasy of purity and defilement proved no less compelling and no less useful in the 15th century than the quote unquote scientific or biological racism of the 18th and 19th centuries or Nazi racial theories that presented the Jews as a corruption of the German reservoir of blood that required racial hygiene to some extent spain's religious limpieza doctrines constitute a template for the more explicitly racialized variants that came later where 15th century limpieza theorists depicted jewish heresy as a source of blood pollution spanish slave-owning colonists later established the inferior black blood of their black slaves on the basis of negative associations with skin color to justify a colonial hierarchy dominated by pure-blooded white Spaniards that still persists in many Latin American countries to this day where Spanish limpieza doctrine categorized people as half new Christians or quarter new Christians according to their parentage The population of colonial haiti would later be graded into different variants of black blood to white just as the slave-owning societies in the english-speaking caribbean and the southern united states had similar hierarchies of quadroons mulattoes and octoroons can you elaborate on this insight
1: um i wanted in that particular extract I wanted to highlight. Um, I wanted to kind of place the concept of um, limpieza de sangre, purity of blood doctrine, which kind of um, came um, another of Spain's political religious obsessions in the 15th century. Firstly, in regard to Jews, and secondly, um, in regard to Moriscos. So, I wanted to highlight the uh, the fact that this kind of way of looking at um, looking at characterising a particular group as inferior, alien, or loathsome, and then imagining it in terms of something that was carried through physically or metaphysically in the blood. The difference was not always clear. Through the body, and that basically members of this group inherited all the loathsome or inferior characteristics of of their parents and their grandparents and so on, that this was... An early phase of that, and a variant on it, because at that time um, it was um, inferiority was seen in terms of the Limpieza de Sangre doctrine was an attempt to kind of um, reconfigure Spain as being a kind of Visigothic Latin Christian country with no trace of these unwanted faiths, and Limpieza de Sangre became a way of excluding Jews from public office in the first instance later excluding moriscos, and it also became a way of establishing a hierarchy of not exactly race as we came to understand it in the 19th century, but certainly the word ratha was used in terms of breed or stock. So um, it was an early, given that racism has a long history, and has gone through lots of different variations, like sometimes race can, sometimes the concept of race can focus on faith, other times it talks about culture. Another time he talks about biology, so this was a kind of t- this was an early phase of that, and I so I tried to s- explain in that particular extract a kind of potted history of how this way of um understanding people in terms of how much impure blood they had, because this is what would be done in um in Spain, of course, in 15th century Spain, and 16th century Spain, people would try and find um you know documents showing how what. To what extent did you have Jewish blood in you? Um, and therefore, that might change, affect how you were treated, what jobs you could have, what position in a church um, organization you could have, and so on. And the same with Moriscos. So later on, those same, similar categories had a different kind, were filled with different concepts uh, relating to skin color. And then in the 19th century, to supposedly biological characteristics that were handed down rooted maybe in your skin color in your size of your brain the weight of your brain the shape of your skull and so on but the general dynamics are quite similar in each case it's about establishing hierarchies establishing insiders and outsiders and finding reasons to despise a particular group not only as they are now but as they always have been always will be so I was trying to kind of explore that, really, in that particular tragedy, in that particular extract. And this would be an example of what I was saying to you at, at the beginning of this conversation, that as a writer who writes about history, I feel I can do that up to a point. Um, you know, because that's one of the things that attracted me to the whole story in the first place, was that, to see, to see where this episode slotted in, in this kind of whole history of um, race as a construct and so on.
0: As we bring today
1: doesn't mean I'm right, but it doesn't mean I'm right. So it's a hypothesis I was advancing.
0: <clears throat> as we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you are working on next as your current project? What are you working well, on I see- now?
1: I can. It's interesting you should say that now after asking that question because um, <clears throat> the project I'm working on now is a project, it's a book about, um, how can I describe it? It's a book about Charles Darwin's experiences in Patagonia, and how um, what he saw, his, uh, what he saw of the indigenous peoples in Patagonia, the conclusions that he reached about them, and about the place, and about the concept of savage and the barbarian, how those ideas fed into his work, and how um, how um, these ideas later shaped what happened in Patagonia in the 19th century with the destruction of the indigenous peoples of Patagonia in Chile and Argentina so in other words in some ways you can see a certain similarity already powerful major- majorities annihilating um, smaller uh, annihilating minorities that are considered to be incapable of belonging in this case in, in the in this case of the thing I'm working on now within the boundaries of the nation-state. And so on. And I was interested in how science contributed to settler colonial discourse in Patagonia. I chose Patagonia because it's so closely linked to Darwin. It's not my attempt to kind of indict Darwin, particularly, um, you know, but it's interesting to look at Darwin, what he thought and how what he thought reflected a certain way of looking at indigenous peoples that 19th century anthropologists and scientists in general had and to see what was the outcome of that in this particular place, Patagonia. So to do the research for that, where I went to Patagonia earlier this year, I spent a couple of months there, fabulous couple of months, um, investigating this amazing land. And I'm, um, that's what I'm working on now, really. I'm not, and um, it's just as complicated as the Moriscos book, and right in the middle of it.
0: I wish you the very best of luck in that noble intellectual pursuit. I hope it goes smoothly for you, And I hope that it will be brought to fruition as, as intended.
1: Thank you, Ari. Thank you very much. I hope it will be too. And uh, I very much appreciate our conversation.
0: As we end today, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the new Books in History podcast. Today I've been in dialogue with Matthew Carr regarding his book, Blood and Faith, The Purging of Muslim Spain, published in London by Hearst 2017. Matt is a writer and a journalist, a lifelong hispanophile. Matt writes fiction and nonfiction often focused on themes from Spanish and Latin American culture, history, and politics. He's the founder of the one day without us campaign in solidarity with migrants and a co-host on the podcast, Grim Up North, a podcast about the North from the North. Thank you very much for your wisdom
1: today. Thank you, Harry. Thank you very much indeed.